Hey friends, welcome to Seeking Sanctuary House to Heart, a podcast about abuse, trauma, and finding healing in the arms of Christ. I'm Hannah Fordyce, the founder of House of Faith and Freedom, or HOF for short, an organization dedicated to creating practical resources for faith communities to better deal with domestic violence. You can find out more about HOF online at houseoffaithandfreedom.org. Hoff was really born out of my own experience as a domestic violence advocate and motivated by the powerful, difficult, and often heartbreaking stories of survivors, many of whom articulated to me their experiences with the church. And spoiler alert, most of them were not positive. This is where the work of Hoff really begins. It begins in these broken places. And I think before anything else, it begins with listening. Abuse is a complex, messy, and above all, hidden topic. I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon preached on it, even though scripture repeatedly addresses God's hatred for violence and his care for the oppressed. Most churches and faith communities openly and regularly address various relational sins, such as infidelity or pornography addiction, but rarely, if ever, address abuse, especially psychological and emotional abuse. This is a serious problem. Because according to the CDC, one in three women and one in four men will experience physical abuse, stalking, or sexual assault by an intimate partner at some point during their life. If we add in psychological abuse, it turns into a whopping 50% of the population that's experienced some form of domestic violence. That means that half of our congregations, half of our communities, have experienced this unique and particular trauma. But because we don't talk about it, our silence ends up condoning it, allowing it, and it really fosters this culture that perpetuates abuse, trauma, and power differentials. Seeking Sanctuary House to Heart is all about holding the space for challenging but absolutely vital conversations on abuse and trauma in the context of faith. It's a metaphorical table where survivors, faith leaders, psychologists, social workers, counselors, advocates, et cetera, et cetera, are invited to participate in the conversation. And I really can't think of a better way to start it out than with a survivor story. After all, that is what it's all really about. Please note that for the safety and the privacy of our guests, all survivors will only go by a first name. And sometimes we may have changed the first name for their privacy. That said, I'm so grateful to have Sarah on this, the show today. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Hannah, um, for sharing the space with me. And I know that your heart is uh, wanting to create a space where we can share these difficult things, but also um, recognizing that Christ himself is right here in this space with us. So I just, I just want to take a second just to uh, thank him for that. If we could do that together, that would be great. Okay. Um, Lord Jesus, thank you for your kindness always. Thank you for your love that is perfect. And thank you for each listener. And Lord, what does your love look like to them and for them? How would you want to deliver that? Lord, just allow us to not just hear your voice, but to really take in your voice deeply. And um, we trust you with this space in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. Thank you. So I know that we've had a few conversations in the past about your story, but I don't know that I've ever actually heard the whole thing. Uh, I mean, I want to be transparent and I want to offer my experience in domestic violence. Uh, and I do recognize that circumstances and details sometimes are hard to articulate here and there at least. Uh, and for many years, I did not know what I was in. Um, and in fact, years down the road, I, I needed help even explaining it. Uh, so it is, it is a deep, it is a deep um, and over time issue. And it's, it is very confusing and can be very, certainly confusing for uh, those who are in it. And again, I didn't know I was, I was in it. So, uh, but you, yes, um, we've have had conversations and I think that's a good place for me to start because conversations were really uh, important at a young age. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to articulate that then but I realized how much they were a part of my life at a, at a young age. And that being really fostered uh, by my mom, and at night we would pray often, most nights, and there wasn't anything that we couldn't talk about that we didn't end up praying about. And I think that kind of flow of life and uh, just really kind of became breathing in some ways, uh, just that, that, that Jesus was always near and he listened, and I wanted, I wanted um, to listen to him. And, you know, that, that kind of flowed into my relationships in high school, just had such great Christian friends, even in a public high school, still friends to this day. A lot of those um, times we would even pray with one another. Uh, we were all involved in different things too, art and music and athletics and I uh, just had a, that was just a really an awesome season for sure. And, but uh, much of the time we would pray before games or pray over one another, even at youth events or uh, things like that. And I really wanted uh, to play athletics in college at a, at a high level. And that opportunity came around and, you know, but what I wanted more was, um, the voice of Jesus. And I ended up uh, going to a Christian university and playing athletics there. And of course, those are not just your teammates. Those are your brothers and sisters. And your coaches are your brothers and your sisters and mentors. And there was definitely a sense of togetherness and prayer. And uh, I could take a long time to talk about that, but I won't. <laughs> So uh, anyway, conversation was really important to me. And, you know, after graduating uh, college, uh, I met a gentleman who was an incredible conversationalist. And uh, he was a communicator, like I said, uh, he was a, a listener. Um, he was a servant. Uh, he cared deeply about others. And um, he was extroverted, so we enjoyed being in the same room and enjoying talking with many people and asking them good questions, and he was very good at that. Um, we got married a couple years down the road, and he felt called to go to seminary, which was great, 
And that was three years and graduated with an MDiv with the highest honors and receiving uh, the top award you could possibly get. We later um, moved to a pretty prominent suburb and uh, he began working in a church that uh, as, a, as a youth director and it was a pretty um, well-respected church, maybe just under a thousand members or so. So um, it was pretty good. But I did notice um, one, one thing was that he was often irritated about things or even angry about things. Um, and I think that happened more in private. And maybe I just thought, oh, well, that's nice. He can feel like he can be authentic with me. I appreciated that. Um, but it was, I mean, about traffic or drivers, uh, employees not doing their jobs or professors not teaching well enough or explaining things well enough, coworkers not doing things um, how we thought they should go, uh, or cu certainly customer service representatives um, uh, were not delivering the kind of service that he thought that that should that they should be, um, and also um, with me. And I think you bring up a really important point here, which is that most people who have abusive tendencies, you don't see it right away. They're not necessarily advertising that behavior out in public or in their friendships or some of those relationships. It's something that shows up really slowly over time. It's almost like the frog getting boiled in, in water slowly, you know? And, and I think it's very easy for us um, from the outside to assume that victims should have seen it coming. Like they should have been more aware of it. But the reality is um, ab abusers look just like everybody else. <laughs> like they, mm -hmm. they can be people who are in seminary and in church and um, who are really great conversationalists and very chatty and very charming. It's, it's not something that gets worn on your sleeve very often. They're not like the thugs that we sort of portray them to be. Right. Well, well said. And that is true. Um, and when circumstances were not in his favor, it was definitely known. Uh, so to further explain, um, sometimes the yelling would become so intense that it was difficult to just even be present around that. So there would be times like uh, we would be driving and uh, I would be riding in the passenger seat and it's such a small space. And um, for that much intensity, and I can't even quite remember exactly what he would be yelling or so frustrated and he would just say well this I'm just a passionate person this is just my frustrated voice um but the yelling would become so intense in such a confined space uh, there would be times where it was just like my physical body just had to get out it it was and I'm not I'm not a super sensitive dramatic kind of person <laughs> um so I would, I just, we'd be at a stop sign or something and I would just open the door and just, just get out. It was that intense. And I remember thinking to myself, I have got to be crazy. 
I have never done anything like that before in my life, nor have I ever imagined doing that. And sometimes we would even be going at a decent speed and I would whip the door open and just be like, I, and, and have to get out. And again, after doing so and taking a walk, you know, thinking to myself, I have got to be crazy. And I did not realize that as this continued, that this toxicity would continue, I would continue to think that I was crazy and I was so confused because I wasn't used to being in conflict really with much of anyone. And um, that, that was new to me. But I thought, you know, this is marriage, right? Marriage is hard and we need to love one another through it. And let's figure out how to overcome these, these kinds of circumstances. Um, and in some ways I kind of played it off. Like, you know, these, these, uh, these, this, this high level of criticism or demeaning or things like that. I, I would play it off almost like a coach, uh, thinking of it in terms of a, of a coach. I mean, a coach pushes their players. I mean, it's to make them better. It's to bring the best out of them, certainly to grow a team and to help a team come together. So I dismissed his anger and in the process, I also dismissed my thoughts and my voice. And um, like I said, this is just what it means then when people say uh, marriage is hard. Um, yeah, it is, it is confusing. And that is, that is the side effect. And it was hard because, um, you know, not that much farther on, he became one of the main, one of the main pastors at our church and doing a pretty substantial amount of teaching. So I'm hearing wonderful truth from the pulpit. And so are the kids from the pulpit and at home, it just being a, a, quite a different environment. And I think you bring up a, a, an interesting and sort of subtle shift that takes place over time in a lot of relationships that sort of move out of unhealthy and into abusive is there's a, a subtle power shift and there's also a subtle blame shift that sort of comes along where um, one person really leans into what can I do better? How can I make the marriage work more? What can I change? And the other partner takes no ownership for anything. They're very much like, you're right. You should change things. You should fix them. And so you, you move into this place where one person is always the villain and one person is always the air quotes, good guy. Um, and it's, and it's interesting because it, it, it subtly shifts your dynamic, your power dynamic in the favor of the abusive individual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's true. Uh, and I did take a lot of ownership because why would I ever think that um, he wasn't taking ownership? I mean, even being a part of, again, returning to a team, everybody's doing their part. Everybody's trying to, to, to go towards the same end goal of, you know, winning, which I guess in marriage is 
I don't want to put it in winning and losing terms by any means, but you know, you want to come together. You want, you want a loving family. You want to work things out and to, to move forward towards Christ and to lean into Christ, not just individually, but certainly together and as a family. I mean, that is, that is the ultimate hope. So I didn't, I didn't see that. I didn't, I didn't see that. Um, and I, I remember one point and where things started to maybe shift a little bit for me. Um, you know, at one point I was doing the dishes in our home and he was in the living room kind of watching and, um, he did not think in, that I was doing the dishes fast enough and efficient enough. And he said, you know what? I'm going to come over there and do them myself. So he came over. He stood, stood next to me. And um, he said, I'm going to do these. And I thought, you know, hmm. And I said, well, I started these. You know, I can finish them. I can, I'll finish them. And he said, no, you're not. And I'm going to finish them. And I could tell he was super angry. And I said, no, I'll finish them. And as he continued to say no as well, and that he would do it, he was leaning into me and then leaning harder and harder. And I, I'm not super small, so I had a pretty good stance. And I just, and he continued to lean harder and harder. And truly, the next thing I knew, I was on the floor. And that wasn't, it was such a small, uh, again, we're the only, we're the only ones in the room. Um, and I'm on the floor and he's standing over me and that was just definitely, um, that was definitely a time where I was flooded with emotions and even now hard to choose which, which one, I mean, really quite shocked and surprised. And at the same time, um, feeling so small and so overpowered. And that was not uh, the norm for me at all. So that, that was a significant wake up, at least to the point where, yeah, something's off. <laughs> I wish I could have put more significant words to it, but I would have probably then said, this is really off. And we had seen a few counselors or a couple of counselors in the past, but then that shifted to many more many more. And I mean, I just wanted things to be okay. And I wanted this kind of behavior to stop, but I did become really like a professional fire extinguisher behaviorally, just wanting things to be calm and settled and the kids to be okay for their, for them not to be riled up and caught into the, the flood of um, conflict starting and abrupt drama, but they're kids and, and they were, they were very much swirled into that heightened emotion and toxicity. Uh, the other piece that, um, 
kind of awakened me was uh, finally we did after 13 counselors land on a council, uh, two counselors, a male and female that took us under their wing and for a while. And they, um, they were the first ones that really caught on to what this was. Um, the, the male counselor in particular, he, he caught on to it and then he invited in this female counselor who um, was, I mean, she specialized in trauma and she is specialized in domestic violence, um, especially within formal ministry. That was huge. And I remember being in a counseling session with them, many, but one in particular, and it was, I want to say even the first one. And by the way, even the drive to the counseling session was just so hard. I never knew what I was going to say. I felt in just, just voiceless and so confused, so confused. And I would just beg God on the way, please, please just show me what you want in this session. Please help me. Uh, that was really real. Um, but anyway, in that first, in that first counseling session, um, uh, it was the four of us, my husband and I, and the two counselors. And the, the female counselor turned to me at the very end. Here we had tackled a session by God's grace. And at the very end, she turned to me and said, um, you know, you're, you know, the schedule of your kids, you homeschool your kids and, um, you, you know, your, your family calendar, what do you think would be an appropriate, uh, time and day to meet for all of us to meet next? And at that moment, to my total surprise, I broke and just sobbed. And it sounds so simple, but no one had, or at least within the walls of our home, had asked for my opinion or what I thought. So here was somebody just intentionally just asking me about a date and time that was quite alarming. I realized, wow, where am I? <laughs> and looking back, I don't think I could have told you anything about what my favorite color was or, or, or knowing what maybe new interest I had or anything. I mean, it was, again, being a, a fire extinguisher and wanting everything to be okay. And then we could translate that into a, a more realistic term, as in I really became a professional enabler, all in the name of wanting peace, right? So it's really confusing or really subtle to, to flow into that position of enabler. And I wanted everything, of course, like I said, to be okay. Um, and I know in the past when we've talked, um, I know the church at some point became involved in, in sort of the counseling process. What did that look like for you and, and for your husband at the time? Yeah, uh, we did. We had gone through a separation and, um, and kind of brought things back together. And then um, we continued. I mean, 
we continued to, to work with these two counselors, but separately knowing because they came to understand what the situation was. So we were in separate counseling and, um, and that was very, very helpful. And then uh, I began to, to speak up to um, leadership within the church, the other pastors. And they were, they were like family to me anyway. Um, they were my, my brothers and sisters. And so I just, I had to fill them in on, on what was going on and uh, felt that that was very, very important because what was awakening to me as well was the truth that whatever's in the heart is going to come out. And I knew, and I loved the people in this particular body. I, they were my, again, family. Um, this was where our kids thrived. Everyone knew our kids. They rubbed the heads of our kids, wanting playdates with our kids. We did life together. And if whatever's in the heart is going to come out, it's eventually going to come out on these people. And I said, no. And so I spoke up. Our two counselors began working with um, our church leadership trying to help them understand what was going on. They even met with them um, on their own uh, in an elder meeting, passing out uh, documents, pamphlets, books, examples of what this kind of domestic abuse looks like. They passed out highlighters, pens, you know, and, and really began to share with them. And um, it seemed like they really started to catch on. Uh, and then they decided to uh, kind of hand us over to five leaders within the church who had taken a couple of biblical counseling classes and um, to kind of help my husband and I kind of come together, um, hopefully to reunite. So they began marriage counseling with us, these five leaders. So there were three men, two women. And we came together, you know, all seven of us together, as well as um, I would also meet with the two women on my own. Um, I agreed to this because, um, because I thought, you know, okay, as long as could we, I just had one, I had one request, and that was, could we please stay connected to our two original professional counselors. And they said, yes, absolutely, we can do that. And I said, great. And even though having all these counselors prior uh, in the past and knowing that these guys had maybe a few classes under their belt, I still, I was thinking, this is good though. This is biblical counseling. It matters. And I know that they love Christ and they want to do what he wants them to do. So I, I was in. And, but however, the more we met together, all seven of us, I felt more and more unsafe at home because those things that were voiced and shared within those group sessions were often used against me at home. And that, that was difficult to navigate for sure. Um, 
And oftentimes when I worked with the two women, you know, there were assignments to do. Um, we had gone through a couple books and, and, and at one point I was asked to write a paper on the word truth. Now, mind you, um, with all of these meetings, constantly finding childcare for my kids and um, homeschooling them and loving that, um, that, that was, I was exhausted. And, and as far into the, to the marriage as it was, very exhausted. So um, I remember not handing in that paper about truth. I, I didn't have the margin, nor the mental capacity, truly, even like, though I loved those things. I was going to say, I think by that point, the slow, the slow grade of, of abuse, it just strips you away. It's like sandpaper that's constantly shredding you until there's almost nothing left. And you're, you're just, just barely hanging on. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's a lot, I feel like there's a lot of things about being asked to write a paper on truth that can maybe be concerning. It does feel a, a bit on the victim blamey side. Like maybe they thought you didn't understand what truth meant. Um, but still, anyway, the, the idea being there, like that's a, in a lot of ways, an un, uh, you have to have grace for people who are living in those situations. You are carrying so much weight at that point in time. Mm hmm and I think clearly they thought it was a marriage issue. So if I'm not handing in a paper on the word truth, I'm not doing my part. And I think that was the conclusion. And I think there was, um, and I don't necessarily blame them for that because I don't think they understood what, you know, what it is like to be in deeply in it. Um, yeah. But I think there was frustration in and around things in general and that things weren't getting better because this marriage issue just wasn't getting better. And um, they pulled us in for a group session and they said, we're done with you guys. We're going to stop counseling. This is enough and we're, we're done with you. And I... I was right there with them, believing them like, yeah, I, I don't know what my problem is and thinking, I don't know what angle to continue to try to, to try to approach this marriage from, but I'm not doing it well. And, um, that was certainly my own issue, but it is amazing too, though, as much as you can love love Christ and recognize that you want to, um, that he, it does take a miracle to turn any marriage around. It does. And, and I did know that, but I wanted to do my part too. Um, but, uh, yeah. And I knew it was going to take a miracle. So when they said, we're done with you, I accepted that. Um, for whatever reason, this was not working out. Uh, and then um, I think my husband and I were, we were after that just trying to make it work. And he said that he really wanted to go on a road trip, um, a seven day 
road trip and I knew in the past the way the cycle kind of works that um, that switch wouldn't be flipped uh, to high conflict. It usually took maybe three or four days, sometimes five. So I knew thinking seven, um, this feels really unsafe. And I asked God about it. And for whatever reason, I mean, he really, he really did give me a piece about going. And so the kids and I and my husband went on this road trip to a different state. And, um, uh, and I had flashbacks about, um, you know, a lot of times if we'd want to go camping or do something like that when, um, in earlier years, you know, the packing progress can be rigorous, of course, and there's potential for things to go uh, in different ways you don't expect. And there were many times where he would pull the rug on a plan. So like pull the rug on this camping trip we were preparing for saying, we're not going. You guys can't get this stuff together. Everybody's flying around. This is out of control. We're not going. Kids would be crying in that moment. Um, dad, please, please let us, come on, come on, dad. Can we go, let's go, right? Can't we just do this? No, we're not going. And then maybe an hour would pass and everybody's kind of wandering around, not knowing what to do. Somehow he would come back around and, and say, okay, we'll go, we can go, we'll go. And then they would be so thankful to him and, and happy and thanks dad so much. And I'm so glad we're going to go. Yeah, we get to go. Hey mom, we get to go. Um, um, but on this particular road trip, as the kids were a little bit older, elementary school age, uh, I knew this was probably going to be unsafe and unsafe it was. And there were many of those kind of moments where the rug was pulled and, um, and by day six, uh, my husband turned to me and he said, I don't care. I don't care anymore. I don't care. You can have the house. You can have the kids. I'm done. You're going to do whatever you want anyway. And um, I'm done. And at this point, I'm in such a state of angst and numbness. And I mean, I'm pretty silent at this point, just quiet. It would often go for walks in the morning on that trip or runs, um, etc. Uh, anyway, when I got home from that trip uh, and processing with those two professional counselors, I stayed connected with those two consistently and was so thankful for that. And they never, side note, I mean, they never charged me a dime. They knew what I was up against. They knew what I was in. I didn't. Um, and as the lights began to go on a bit more for me, um, after that trip, I ended up going to a lawyer's office and filing for divorce. It, I, I didn't know how much longer I could make it. Just make it. And um, as I processed more with my counselors about that, I thought, you know, even though they were supportive either way, um, 
I thought, you know what, I'm just going to keep this as a legal separation because I just want to keep the door open for God to do a miracle. And I'll leave it at that. And um, well, when my church body found out that I originally uh, filed for divorce, they divorced, they pulled me, pulled me into um, their office and they said, um, you're not going to be taking communion anymore. And that's because you are hard hearted. You're hard hearted and, um, and your husband isn't going to be doing that either. So, um, yeah, we both, we both weren't allowed to do that. Um, and I thought, oh, you know, I believed them and I thought they're right. I probably am hard hearted and I, you know, I probably shouldn't be taking communion then. So I didn't. And that was over a period of, I want to say close to nine months. Um, and then, um, you know, even, even though it was at a legal separation and I expressed that there still wasn't a shift for, um, the communion piece, but, uh, the final court hearing came about and the judge asked a final question, um, to which I answered that I still wanted to keep this as a legal separation. Um, in again, hopes that God would do uh, a miracle. And then um, my husband said that he did not want to keep it as a legal separation, that he wanted it to be a divorce. So in that sense, in the court system, if one person says that they want to be divorced, then um, you basically walk out divorced, at least where we live in our state. So I left that day divorced and I really couldn't tell almost how I was feeling. There was so many emotions. Um, I didn't know if that was a total tragedy or if it was a rescue or if it was both, but I do believe it was both. Um, because my husband at the time voiced that it should be a divorce in the courtroom. Uh, the church had uh, in their next kind of annual business meeting, there was probably 100, maybe 150 core members of the church there. Um, uh, they, they had told us ahead of time or told me ahead of time they were going to remove his membership um, and keep mine. Okay, but I wasn't still allowed to take communion. And I really prayed about whether to go to that annual meeting or not. And I, again, felt peaceful about it. They were just going to pull his membership, but I didn't know if I wanted to hear that, you know, I mean, I did, I, I cared. I still cared for my now ex-husband cared for his personhood, his heart. And I didn't know if I wanted to hear them pull his membership, but I decided to go after praying that through and um, I didn't know they were going to give about a 20, 25 minute rundown of our story and announce to everyone, everyone that I was not taking communion and was going to continue to not take communion because of my level of hard heartedness and really 
to me that transplanted within the church body publicly that um, this was definitely a marriage issue and she's hard hearted. And that was her contribution, you know, in her sin and flesh to this marriage to which I embraced. Um, but after all of that, um, there was not a phone call. Um, our community was pretty much severed in a silent way. They were very good about being saying, we still want both of them to come to this church. We want, you know, and I, and of course I did. I'm, I love the church. I love the body of Christ. I love. I love the people. That was, that was my family. Why would I ever not walk into a Sunday morning service where I knew the truth and the Bible would be preached in a God-honoring way? Why would I not want to go? So I continue to try to go. But I found it to be so painful and silent. And at that time, I was also working three jobs. My kids were in the public school system. And um, life was upside down. And it was annihilating enough to watch your kids go out the door to their dad's house in their little flip-flops. And to completely release them 50% of the time. And yeah, that was just very, very, very hard. And we walked that alone. And I did not expect that my kids would walk that alone. I mean, I'm an adult. I've got professional counselors, um, you know, walking me through helping me understand what this kind of domestic abuse is, how toxic it is, how the victims become voiceless. And, uh, and again, no one knows what their favorite color is. So, but the kids were sent to the public school and I was just begging God for his help. And what was so awesome were the teachers and staff at these schools, and they continue to love on these kids so amazingly well. And that was grace. That was his grace and his kindness all over the place. And I dearly love um, those teachers. And I myself ended up working in, this pub in the public schools as well. That was one of the jobs that I had to maintain the same schedule as the kids. And I do, I love the public school and I love the way those teachers come around kids. It is amazing what they do, especially the teachers that see the kids. Um, anyway, so it was a lot of what we felt to be abandonment and yet I'm guilty as well. 
um, it was very hard to, to reach out. I didn't know where I stood with people. Again, it wasn't at a marriage issue. And I was just under the new, newer revelation that this was not, that this is how this kind of entitlement lives and breathes and, and breeds also toxicity within a home. And no matter how much you try as a victim to try um, to fix it or handle it or talk through it or not, or it wasn't about that. There needed to be a miracle sense of transformation on the perpetrator's part. And that was for God to handle. And he made that clear. And I was able to release um, in my heart, this whole situation and that it wasn't my job to try to perfectly navigate it or fix it or buffer it or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and what sustained me as a parent and um, as a mom was recognizing that, that God, God himself is the perfect parent. And he goes, he goes out the door with them. And that really sustained me. And I do believe that um, our church uh, tried to do the very best they could with everything that they did know about the situation. Um, um, but there were many gaps and it is, it's just hard. It's very hard for anyone to breathe what a, what a, what a family of victims. Um, it's hard to breathe their environment. If you, if you're not in it, there's such a difference between public life and private life. It's almost, it's almost like a culture. Like we, oftentimes churches do missions to other countries where you step into the culture for a week or two weeks and you may get a surface level understanding from witnessing that culture for that short time period, but you don't really understand the culture. You don't at, at its roots understand what it is to live inside of that system. And I feel like that's abuse. You have a culture in your home and even though we can hold space and we can listen and we can hear, and that's the beginning of understanding, you can't under you can't really understand it unless you've lived it, unless you've existed inside of it for long periods of time. Yeah. And the opposite of that environment is is you can reference Colossians in building one another up in love. And I think when the counselor asked me what time and day would be appropriate for your family for the next counseling session, I mean, it was not about that. And I by no means would have expected any kind of perfect marriage or relationship in general, but it completely was not about one another or, or the fostering and building one another up and I think linked with that on the on the opposite end of that spectrum is a breeding of codependency. And what I realized is that that's what power and control is. Oh, now 
now I get it. You know, there's so many wonderful uh, books out there now. And um, well, not so many. <laughs> it would be great if there was a ton more resources out there. Um, but, you know, they often talk about, of course, power and control and that being the very essence of abuse. And what it looked like in this hidden sense was a creating of codependency, a restricting of growth for a person, a restricting of independence. Um, and so wanting everyone to be dependent on him and to look to him as the fixer and solution person. So it was so confusing when these problems and conflicts would arise. It was so interesting how within the cycle he would come back around and fix it. Like, yay, now we can go on the camping trip. Thank you, dad, mom, we get to go. And um, those situations were all over uh, the environment of home. But if you just plucked one, if you just plucked one circumstance and tried to explain a circumstance, no one would probably say, oh, this is an abusive marriage or this is an abusive home. Which I think is, I mean, that's the interesting part about the definition of abuse as we, as we know it today. It's this pattern of power and control. It's this, this repeated system that's created that, that favors one person over the other. And that's exactly what you're saying. I mean, you watched your, your husband at that point create situations in which he reminded you and your kids over and over again, I'm the one who gets to make the choices. I decide whether we go. I decide whether we stay. And if we stay, it's not my fault. That's because you were too slow or you were too chaotic or you didn't do something the right way. Like, mm -hmm. It's always subtly playing that in such a repeated pattern. And that really is the sort of tell for abuse. It's often less one experience and, and more the culture, the overarching culture in the relationship. Mm -hmm. That's so true. And at that point, when you're feeling alone, or when I'll speak for myself, when I was feeling alone in the understanding of that, um, it was amazing that, um, that I, I wasn't, I was not alone at all, that Christ was my advocate and he orchestrated minutes he orchestrated finances and he did it to my left and my right and um, I bank on him continually that he covers parents and covers the kids and I bank on that and I saw him do this over and over again and at one point you know upon upon the divorce um, you know, the judge said I had six months if I wanted to come up with the amount of equity for our home if, in order to be able to keep it. And that in and of itself was a grace because normally they don't usually do that. Um, and I, I hadn't ever prayed the prayer, Lord, I have five loaves and two fish and it just broken. And I think that's the only words I could utter. And I put out a scraggly email to um, those that I had walked in ministry with, people that knew me, 
from for over a long period of time, people outside of my immediate church community. So people I had walked in, like I said, camp ministry with, you know, um, back uh, teammates, um, um, a lot of friends that uh, across the country, praise God that he built that network ahead of time and um, put out a little email. And uh, then, I mean, I could go into a thousand details, so I'll, I'll be careful here, but like I, I had met a couple randomly at one of the jobs that I was working at and they wanted to know my story I figured out they were Christians. I was just asking them about that and blah, 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 and what their story was. So they asked me what mine was. I told them a little bit. They understood. They, Long story short, I hardly knew them, and they fired up a GoFundMe page and all this other stuff. And and um, But that email, um, the money came in. It did. And I would not, we would not be where we are today. And I have seen redemption upon redemption and restoration. Um, I never wanted to be remarried and um, God had a different plan. And I married an incredible, an incredible, wonderful, humble, godly, adventurous <laughs> man that I love keeping up with. And we could take many podcasts to talk about it. So let me know if you want to invite me back for that. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, um, but our house was sustained for the kids and I, um, I went to different food pantries and then, uh, a friend of mine in, in earlier year, years within camp ministry approached me and said, listen, we get leftover food from, it happened to be the favorite grocery store that I used to always shop at, used to, hadn't seen a grocery store in over a year, um, due to the the finances but um she would they they got all the extra food and they would put it all in their garage in tons of boxes and it was for single moms and it was for um artists as well so I applied to both and which was so great and I would just run into friends while shopping in my friend's garage and get eating all the foods we used to eat and it was just only God it was only, only him and where we are today. You know, it'll never leave my heart to wonder how others are doing, especially in this circumstance, this kind of environment, this kind of marriage. Um, and there were previous, there were many previous, uh, or there were, there were people within my original church community that walked what I walked that experienced what I experienced and um, experienced the same type of response as well from that church community. And God gave me a picture in my mind of scattered sheep. And so I asked him, where are they? And these sheep were alone and by themselves and frantically looking around. And um, I asked him who they are. He showed me them one by one. I heard their stories one by one. And now it has become a beautiful, beautiful time together where we gather together and eat incredible food 
because um, many of them are working three jobs and without paychecks, and um, or not many, or not much. And we hold the space for one another and, and read, read scripture and pray together and hear each other's stories and how each one is doing and how are their kids? How are their kids? And um, that has been a beautiful piece of the redemption story as well. I think it's so... Your story is so incredible and relatable. And I just think about how when we fail as people, as human beings, and certainly as the the, um, the organized church, we often fall short. And and I, you and I have talked about how um, a lot of churches aren't necessarily malintentioned. They're just really misinformed. And that can you know equate to the same thing, which is harm. Um, and yet God is so gracious and so faithful and he advocates for us over and over again. And when we fail, when we as people fail, he is still faithful. And I love watching you and in your story, this redemption arc of the body of Christ, of yeah. people gathering together in a way that is trauma informed, in a way that is holistic in a way that leaves room to breathe and to be and to be hurt and and to see that you haven't given up that piece of gathering together of seeking healing in the arms of Christ and we've had a lot of conversations too that you haven't given up on the church like God no. is unity and for that um, restoration of them also as a people and uh, you know that's that's something we can't negate either is a lot of times they just don't see it yet. So how do we begin to open their eyes? How do we pray for the church to change so that someday they're this safe community that people can walk into as victims and they don't have to go through this long 10 year process of, you know, marriage counseling or of being blamed or of seeing that it's, you know, some kind of a couple's issue instead of a sin issue. Yeah. And it's so important for the church to be that safe space. And, you know, as much as, as much as being in and around abuse and being within that environment and how the enemy works in that environment, um, I think, and I think, I think the enemy has used this style of abuse now to even divide the church because the victims have a terrible time being able to be back in the space when the church very unintentionally, at least the church that I'm speaking of where I'm from or, or had attended, um, very unintentionally didn't mean to almost reinforce the abuse by calling it a marriage issue, but that's what it ends up doing. And so the victims just can't rest there or you know, bare minimum be understood. So it does get used to divide, to divide the church, which um, I, and, and I love, and I love deeply my, um, this particular church. And one day um, I would love to have that reconnection, but um, 
what's really amazing and part of that redemption piece that I was speaking to earlier was that now, now this church is beginning to understand what this is. And they have received a lot of, of biblical counseling and they have a pastor that is absolutely focused in this direction and understands it. Um, and, and they are navigating it. And now some of these new scattered sheep are attending this church and receiving incredible support and help. And that is what matters. And so Lord willing and prayerfully will continue to pray for unity within the church on this subject. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on to the show today and for sharing your story. Um, I just feel so privileged to, to hold the space for you and to listen. And, um, and I'm excited to continue to see what God does through you and through your heart for survivors and for the church. Um, and, and to continue to watch his incredible restoration and healing in your life. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me and sharing the space with Christ together. And speaking of being together, I wanted to share a verse from John 10 where Christ speaks of this unity, uh, namely his unity with the Father and with us. So it's from John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. <laughs>